Well, San Francisco is known for its cable cars. Seattle is known for its Space Needle. And Longview, Washington is known for its Squirrel Bridge. (laughs) The Squirrel Bridge, entitled the Nutty Narrows Bridge, spans Olympia Way and is a local landmark. It was created in 1963 by a builder trying to solve a problem to give way to squirrels that were dipping and dodging through traffic on the busy thoroughfare, trying to not get them flattened by cars as they made their way to Park Plaza, where many of the workers in that office building would set out a nutty feast for the squirrels daily. It didn't take long for the idea to catch on. The squirrels took to it quite quickly and quickly began to teach their young the ropes, quite literally, as they found safe passage to this feeding ground on the other side of the thoroughfare. It was the first of four such bridges built in the area, with two more that are in the works. In many ways, if we were to use this as an analogy for life, we like to think that we are those people on Olympia Way behind the wheel, in control, driving to a set destination as though we have some particular purpose and authority over all that we undertake. But in reality, we're much more akin to the squirrels, dipping and dodging, trying not to get flattened by the trials, the tribulations, and tiny viruses, or whatever comes our way in the course of life. And as we navigate through life, God has given us a bridge, if you will, certainly in Jesus, but a way to remain connected to him through prayer. And as we've looked at this month, prayer is much more than just talking at God, but um, first is a work of our heart, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, in the way that we prepare our heart to engage the Lord in prayer. Uh, Another is that it binds us to him Uh, in the deep love that he has for us. And today, let's look at this safe passage that God gives us in prayer as we look back to John 17, a prayer unto itself. We'll find a couple of um, pointers as we go through it briefly this morning and some models for prayer, as well as a few practical lessons about how prayer gives us safe passage in this life. As you open to it this morning, let's get oriented John 17 um, is a full chapter, one of the few places where we have in total a prayer of Jesus written on record. Other places where we find prayers of Jesus, they're usually models of prayer like Matthew 6, um, a way to pray in the Lord's Prayer, or we have mere references of where Jesus has uh, withdrawn in prayer or gone away to be in prayer. But this is one of the places that we have perhaps the longest prayer on record of Jesus. And with it um, come some reminders and, of course, some lessons for us therein. In this section of it, it opens with a petition that God the Father would protect and preserve the disciples as Jesus would soon depart. Now, the prayer, of course, is recorded on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, but it appropriately has been read in the church on the Sunday after Ascension because that is the moment where Jesus has indeed gone back to his rightful place. He's departed. Ascension always falls on a Thursday because it's 40 days after Easter morning, as Acts reminds us in those 40 days that he appeared to his disciples. And so this Sunday reminds us, in a sense, of kind of the waiting 
um, which is appropriate, certainly in prayer, but um, as a reminder to us throughout life. And waiting for Pentecost, whereby we celebrate next Sunday the fulfillment of all those things. And so in this prayer, Jesus prays that they would be guarded by God the Father. And the way that happens, as we see in verses 11 and 12, is being so united to God and then to one another that um, we are thus guarded and kept towards that end. Now, that union isn't just merely to do the same things, you know, a commonality, of course, or just even a union in a common direction. But this union that Jesus speaks about, he contextualizes for us in saying that they may be one, we may be one, as he and the Father are one. A deep, mutual, abiding love that certainly is born out in purpose, in mission, yes, and even sacrifice as Jesus has modeled down to this moment and then ultimately will be modeled on the morrow after this prayer as Jesus uh, takes his place upon the cross for us. Such union will guard and keep them and guard and keep us. In the midst of life's trials, temptations, and circumstances, we find the key to such union comes through prayer because prayer unites us corporately as it unites us to God. And there we discover um, a first lesson, if you will, actually in the first two words of this opening verse, which begins, Holy Father. There we understand what such union means and looks like. It's the only place in the New Testament where you have that phrase, Holy Father, bid by Jesus or someone. It's quite common in the Old Testament. We see it in the law, in Leviticus, we see it um, in the Psalms, we see it in the prophets, um, and there, it always comes with a call that holiness in recognition of who God is requires the same level of holiness from those petitioning God, that it should be one and the same. We are called to be holy as He is holy. And so here, as Jesus records it for us, it's such a recognition as well. In fact, we recognize this holiness of God in every place that Jesus has taught on prayer, the chief of which in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. And with it is more than just a recognition that God is holy, that he's set apart, but with it is a reminder that we too are called to give ourselves wholly unto God. Holiness to be set apart is something that can only happen when we devote ourselves wholly to God. Our whole plans, our purposes, our heart, our ways, our wisdom, our will, all of it. When we dedicate those fully, wholly to God, we become set apart for His plans and His purposes in life. And that, and that alone, will unify us in a common purpose and direction as we seek to be unified one to another. Cautionary tale, this is where churches have gone off the rails so many times over and over and over again. If they miss the fact that they are called to be set apart by God for a common purpose, which we'll look at in more depth as we go, then they can make anything driven through a, a truck hole of ideas of, well, to be set apart, we can do all these things. Well, the world can do all those things too. That doesn't really make them any more set apart. It just means that you've got a, a unified vision and purpose, which sounds great in business terms, but means nothing in the church world. So to be set apart means that we must do the things that Jesus has done and said and taught and be set apart as he is. That's the only call of the church. Nothing more, 
nothing less, and it's all-encompassing. And so, as we look at that, when we do those things, when we indeed pray, the cool thing about it is that we become unified in what our common purpose is, and it becomes affirmed in you, the body. If we're truly, wholly set apart to God and we ask for His will and direction, then it doesn't become one guy in the front saying, we're going to do these things, but rather, you hear what we hear, and it's affirmed among you. Yes, I had that strange idea that we should focus on that school or that neighborhood or that this or that, that, whatever it may be. It becomes affirmed across the body because God indeed will unify us towards that end if we seek His will above everything else. It's exciting to do. But it begs a really great question, which many will ask of prayer. In fact, it's the most commonly asked thing I receive about prayer, and I'm sure my colleagues can attest to as well, that it is, how do I hear? How do we hear when we pray? How do we know what that is? How are we clear on those such things? The answer, of course, is found back in verse 13, if you look there. First, Jesus says that when we do these things, when we're unified towards this end, when we are wholly set apart, then our joy is complete, is fulfilled when we do that. Sermon for another day, another time. But um, our joy is more than just chasing after the wind and happiness, which will always be fleeting. Our joy abides, should not be taken away or edged out by the world or anything else because it's grounded in someone, God himself, not in something or someone else. So set that aside for another teaching another day, but Jesus again teaches us that this is what happens in such union with him and union with one another. So back to the task at hand. How do we hear? It's right there in verse 14. Um, that he has given us what? His word. Now, John, as you know, plays on that word, word, quite often. Begins in John 1, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, hearkening back to the word, speaking everything into being back in Genesis. All the imagery is quite rich, and he uses it time and time again and applies it to Jesus himself. And we should recognize that because what he's saying is that the way in which we know what to do, how to engage the world, comes through a knowledge of the Word, which has a very expanded meaning. A knowledge of the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, a knowledge of this Word which he's expounded on, the whole latter half of which now he's saying includes his fulfillment of the Old Testament which has gone before, which is now recorded for us, and then the Word speaks to the early apostles, which then is the latter half of the two-thirds of the New Testament. So, you see, it's quite rich. And this is important because it unlocks the way in which we hear, namely that we have to remain in God's Word. It's a chief way that we hear God's voice. And in such times, it gives us direction. Sometimes, as we pray, He pulls from the deposits of uh, passages of Scripture in our hearts for a particular season or circumstance. Sometimes, we pray our way through Scripture as we're open just to hear what He has to say. He may highlight something for us that's applicable to our life or to our circumstances as well. But if we don't spend time there, if we aren't looking to listen in His Word, 
he doesn't send off warning bells elsewhere. I mean, he's already spoken. So if we don't spend time in his spoken word, why is he going to, with redundancy, say it over and over and over and over again? It's, it's there. And thus, we should pay attention. Um, now, he may contextualize it to our circumstances. He may give us direction in certain ways. He always does that. But if we're impoverished, which I will say the church is impoverished in a knowledge of God's Word, especially in the West, it's very hard to hear his voice. And therefore, the church goes off the rails more often than it stays on track at times. And thus, we must be serious students. As that collect in Advent now says, we must read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest God's Word and apply it to our lives. It must be the first place we go because it will unify us together. It will keep us on track. It will keep us under His authority, and it will keep us out of error. Sadly, when we don't sit under the authority of God's Word and allow it to speak and direct our circumstances, that's where we get off track. That's where the church gets off track. That's where the culture gets off track. It wants to look at my life and apply it over the text, look at the culture and set it on top of the text, and then read my life circumstances or that of the culture around me into the text. You'll miss it every time. This informs everything else, and thus we must be in it. Thus we must digest it. Thus we must be hearty students of it, sitting under that toward our own end. So the lesson there, of course, is quite practical, that we must hold on to His Word, both hearing and knowing in prayer, knowing the direction and the course in life as we pray is a lifelong process. Nobody arrives, myself included. And thus, every time we go, we learn something new, another passage is unlocked a bit further, and it's exciting. And thus, we must take time to do that, one that challenges us daily, one that keeps us on track. And what is this track? It's actually found back in verse 16. Namely, the reason this is so necessary, oops, let's go one more, is that Jesus has gone, but we are not. We remain in the world while He is in His rightful place, reigning and ruling. And because of that, He gives us the truth. His Word is truth, again, not a truth, not um, one option among many, but it is the gold standard by which everything is held up against. And that is why we must look different than the world. And because of that, the world, as I think it's a verse before, will hate us. It's quite simple. And the reason it hates us is because the world serves other gods. It serves other truths. It has other agendas. And the reason it hates the church is it wants the church to kind of come alongside. Well, you guys like to do nice things, right? So why don't you join us with this? Or you want to feed the sick, so why don't you come over here and do this? Or, you know, this kind of aligns with your agenda, right? But the church will never fit because the church will not serve or submit to any other god other than Jesus Christ. And so if that's the case, it will frustrate them every time because it will not come under any other structure, whatever you want to put that structure as. And it cannot because it serves something far greater, namely God himself. And so we're called to be set apart. And therein lies the rub time and time again to continually submit to God's will in ways, to wholly do so, to be set apart, 
to learn to listen because we've applied and listened and put ourselves under God's Word to so sanctify us as is woven throughout here, um, where we are consecrated because Jesus is consecrated, not conforming to external truths, but only the Word made flesh, the truth, Jesus Christ Himself. And thus, prayer must be in the life of the church, holding everything that we could do, every great idea we have, every thought that comes across, and hold it up against the truth and say, is this right? Does it pass the sniff test? Or do I have to kind of say, well, you know, it could. It fits in a very generic circumstance along those ends. But um, we have to be clear on what our goal is, because the goal for us is safe passage, but it's not just for us. In fact, it's about everyone else, namely that in verse 18, we are sent out into the world because Jesus works in and through us. It's not just about us being set apart from the world and hearing God and being a holy people unto ourselves, but we show everyone else where the bridge is, bring them on and help them find safe passage as well too. And that's what makes the church different than every other organization on earth. It has a sole explicit purpose that everyone might come to know Jesus. And if anywhere, you're any place other than here, let me tell you, if you can't find that in a church, you're in the wrong church. Because the only purpose the church exists is not to do anything other than to bring people to Jesus and to grow people up in Jesus. That is the purpose of the church, full stop. Now, there's lots of ends to do that. And so we have to prayerfully discern how do we do that. But the ends are not the means. They're, um, I mean, the means are not the ends, excuse me. Um, so whatever means we use has a full and shameless hook. Whatever we do out in the community, whatever events we run, whatever things we're going to go do, whatever ideas we dream up, have a shameless hook always to bring them to know Jesus, help them find healing. Because if we are so convinced that that is the truth of this life and that's the way that we find wholeness in life, then we must be about that work for the sake of those who do not know him. And thus we pray, and thus we work, and thus we strive together, so that indeed the world may know him and others may come to find the way to Jesus as well. I share this because we're at a pivotal point. You'll hear about this a little bit after worship if you haven't done so yet, um, but it's of no surprise, right? I mean, the world's kind of on a tipping point right now. We're trying to return to normal. Um, we are already fragmented as it was in so many different ways. This is only exacerbated even more in the season that we're in, right? Um, but the church needs to step in the gap to be what only the church can be, which is namely to help find wholeness and reconciliation with the world, not so that they might have full churches and pews or so that we might have winsome activities where people find fun or that we may pump out X number of dollars that we pat ourselves on the back about for doing great things, but only, only for the sake that they might come to know Jesus and that we might grow up in Jesus. And that is the goal. And so as we look to where we're headed and we look to the fall and our plans and activities and postcards that will go out in the mail, let us pray for that end, namely that we may draw nearer to him, we may hear his voice, that we may discern together what are the things we're called to do in this season together for the sake that we might grow up because the growing up in us often haps, happens in the going out to reach them more often than not. And that's where also we must be, 
We may be found in the streets and the highways and byways, in the schools and stadiums, in all the places that we find ourselves toward the end, that those who do not know him, who are starved for community, who don't understand now how to re-engage in life with their fellow man, might discover the only way that you're going to find that is when you get right with him. And when you do, then everything else falls into place. The high calling, friends. Let's not get distracted by all the life throws at us in this season. Let's remain faithful towards that end. Let's return where we need to so that you may attain the full stature of the knowledge and love of God and so that we might help others come to find such as well. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.